You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintzenmeyer. My guest for episode 192 is Ivan Julian. Ivan is a sought-after guitarist. He actually started as a teen touring with the foundations of Build Me Up a Buttercup fame, who really made his mark as a member of Richard Hell and the Voidoids in the late 70s. Then he led his own band, The Outsets, through the first half of the 80s, and has since then been a session guy who's in Matthew Sweet's band for a while. He's played with Shriekback, The Clash, his own band, Lovelies, The Fauntleroys with Alejandro Escovedo. He's produced bands like The Flesh Tones, and he's put out two solo albums. You're right now listening to Godiva, a bonus track from The Naked Flame, 2011. We're going to be discussing I Am Not a Drone Alone from the new one, Swing Your Lanterns. And looking back to the title track from that Naked Flame album, and all the way back to a song he wrote for Richard Hell and the Voidoids, Liars Beware from Blank Generation 1977. We'll conclude by listening to Voodoo Christmas, another song from the new album. For more information, please see IvanJulian.com. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. If you want to support the effort, get ad-free episodes in my episode notes, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. So I will have played a little bit of Godiva from Naked Flame 2011, just because that was what was playing at the beginning of the documentary about you. You don't know Ivan Julian as just a way to show, wow, those are some cool feedback, <laughs> instrumental riffs that you do. You know, that started with a Korg DSS, which is kind of a MIDI sampling keyboard that you put these like, you know, 1K disc in or whatever. But it had great sounds and it had this one loop that was kind of like this Indian loop, you know, with Indian kind of sounds and like Tamarza or something like that. So I thought, I'm going to make a song out of it. So I like, you know, kind of looped it. Then I thought it's just going to be feedbacks, have fun and make some, some noise. I've already will have given during the intro a little overview of the sequence of your career, because we're basically looking at after your band leader days in the early 80s that you mm-hmm. were playing with other people, but then you released these two albums, 2011, and then now... And so it sounds like this Godiva that appears in that 2011 album was probably percolating a bit before that to bridge us to the present is the current album. Like these are things that have been building up, you know, for 10 years. Some of them have been building up for 10 years. Some of them um, have been building up for two or three years. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly making demos and stuff and something might spark me to say, well, you know, you should really turn that into a song. And then when I decided to make this album, I was kind of purging through my riffs and stuff. And some of them became songs on the album. Yeah. Is there a giant vault of additional stuff that you've just recorded? Because, you know, you run a studio, right? So you produce other albums. Yeah. I also, I'm a fan of home recording as well. So mm-hmm. I love the, the, the Tascam four-track cassette players. Those things, if you ever find one, you, you break it out, they still sound great. They're kind of limited. So, you know, if you have a producer side of your brain, it doesn't let you go there that often. It's like, just, just write the song, put the stuff on there, you know, and make it sound like something. Hopefully nothing will happen to me soon. But if it does, no one knows what this stuff is. It's just <laughs> end up in a trash heap somewhere. I don't know. At some point, it was actually within the last year for me that I was like, I got to just put all the cassette stuff. I got to digitize everything. I have to put out on the streaming services, whatever I'm going to put out, you know, just get the archives out there so that I don't have to keep track of things and the tapes can't get <laughs> destroyed by time and et cetera. Well, you know, the tapes sometimes last longer than the CDs do. I've broken out CDs that I had, what is it, like mid-90s, late-90s, and they're all like corroded and they don't play and they just, you know, they don't last forever, you know, and they really don't. I did the same thing, but now I have a pile of CDRs. <laughs> 
Get it on you the know, cloud, on the cloud. Exactly. But then Google or Dropbox will go out of business. Yeah, there's, there's always, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the world will end somehow. Well, let's talk about the new song. The song you picked from the new album, Swing Your Lanterns. I am not a drone alone. I was hoping you would pick that one. A lot of the album is very kind of Rolling Stones, R&B, happy. But this one, having the dark, sonic, youthish, velvet underground-ish, minor key thing, I'm always attracted to that. No, me too. Um, I've never heard this record described as happy, but I, whatever, <laughs> whatever you take away from it. That was almost the title of the album, I Am Not a Drone Alone. And it's weird, um, radio stations that are starting to play that song instead of Swing Your Lanterns. Ah. Because it's kind of indicative of what we're going through right now and the vibe we've just been through for the past few years. It's kind of dystopian thing that we've all witnessed and lived through.
was this basic tracks laid down with a live band or was this just all you layering, layering over time? Just layering, layering. And we're actually all at one time. Like I just went in the studio. Okay. The, I play acoustic guitar, which I love doing and I don't do very much on record. So yeah, it's just layering and layering. There's, a, there's an instrument on that and another song as well called the Booble Tarang. So that thing you hear that's feedback is actually this Indian instrument that's okay. kind of play, play like a typewriter. And I had an electric version. And I mean, if you plug it to an amp, the pickup naturally just feeds back. You don't have to plug it into a box or anything. It makes all these wild sounds. That's interesting. I was thinking it was just guitar feedback, but then at some point I was like, wait, is that actually a viola? Is there something, you know, cause it's not quite <laughs> your normal stand in front of an amp type of feedback. Yeah. I love viola, but I can't play it. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. I know you played with Shriekback. That is one of my Shriekback and XTC are at the center of my musical experience, cool. which Barry Andrews does a lot of the, da, 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 da. you know, the, let's chant in a low voice uh, and this yeah. sort of parallel octave thing that you got going there. It touches on sort of this grimy old style. I don't know. Do you know what you're channeling with your choice of melody there? Do I play with him? I wasn't channeling Barry. I didn't have that thought in mind. This was kind of a trend for a while in the early 2000s and late 90s where everybody was doing this kind of low groveling voice uh-huh. under their vocal, you know? And I thought, well, yeah, this needs that under this to kind of get to really accentuate the, the story that I'm telling. So, yeah. The fact that that's just an accompaniment, it's, I don't want to say vulnerable, but, you know, it's high-ish in your range. It's not... and Yes, so it needed that, you know? Yeah, and then when you get to the chorus, the fact that it's this, you know, some things drop out. It's very clear chorus. Dun, 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 you know, you could have very easily, like, done a big distortion thing on that part. But no, it's we've started an acoustic and now we're going to keep it, in fact, clear out some things to, you know, really, I don't know, it's an interesting way of giving power to the chorus that we're not going to crank up the amps. We're just going to make it clear and piercing. Well, you mentioned Rolling Stones. I mean, you know, Keith's one of my idols, and especially an album like Beggar's Banquet, where he allegedly, like, well, not allegedly, but he did play it, you know, into a cassette player out on Fire Escape somewhere. Those kind of sounds intrigued me. Because distortion, at a certain point, I mean, it's all registers in the same frequency, and everything starts to sound the same. So if you find other ways to kind of give the guitar a voice, that's supposed to be like kind of the children responding. It's supposed to be kind of an innocent part of the song or something like that. You're talking about drones. You, you say this, it touches with something in the modern paranoid spirit, but they're a little abstract, the hate in the horizon. Are you telling a specific story here or are these just images? Well, these are images, but it's mainly about the ecological situation that we're going through. And, and actually the line is the haze in the horizon is smoke in someone's eyes. This was me just listening. I didn't actually have them in front of me. So that's very different. <laughs> that's actually a better line. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's less coherent. The haze is smoke. It's falling from the sky. You know, so the red rain, the environmental catastrophism, I like it. That's what's happening. And, and part of what inspired this song was the movie Rollerball with James Caan. Okay? Oh, okay. Because there's a scene in that movie that always touched me and I, I can't get it out of my head. And it's actually on YouTube. You can find it where the elitists, corporate elitists are standing on this ridge with flamethrowers and they're shooting trees to another ridge and it is like blowing up trees i don't know there's not a line in the song about that but i mean still it just really helped me kind of form that landscape how are you connecting the impersonal the environmental but then there's something in their emotion that used to be in mine and then you know it's i am not a drone it becomes personal any thoughts about that transition there 
We've all gone through periods where we haven't paid a lot of attention to this, even though we've been warned about it for like 30 or 40 years. And, you know, we've all done things that like didn't help the situation. We're all guilty, in other words, you know, to some degree. But, you know, this is a person that's kind of, you know, come to a revelation. Answering that with the, this is too much for words. We have to do this chanting thing. Where, where did that come from here? something in there about children and i just saw these like kind of children in the heap of burning metal just chanting all they that's all they could do is say ooh ah uh-huh and all the would-be children they all look like twins is this a, a sort of a cloning what is the thought behind they all look like twins in other words the people in the scene are genetically ruined uh-huh i mean thus they're drones sure hordes of people that are being affected by this horrible phenomenon did i hear the lyric Correctly, the military smiles and they can dance forever among the glowing, I thought it was Heils, as in Heil Hitler, but what, what is it actually? I love how you're taking this to someplace <laughs> entirely different, which is great because that could be a song too. I'm, it I'm sounds not fascist is what, you know, like an objection to fascism, I should say, not yeah. what, what is the actual line? They can dance forever amongst the glowing piles. Okay. If you ever go to Detroit, okay, north of Detroit, there are these heap of coke ash or something that are still smoldering from mm. the automotive days. And it's just fields and fields of this smoke, smoldering metal and debris. And I actually, when I went there, it was kind of like dusk or something. So that image stuck in my head. And it's still there. I mean, while we're talking, it's still smoldering. I have not seen that specifically. I did take a tour of like the factories, you know, that it, it looks post-apocalyptic in a good chunk of that area that they've just let things collapse. Yeah, I mean, and everybody moved out when the work left and it's just kind of sitting there, you know, spewing stuff into the air. I mean, it's, it's quite an image as well. I mean, it's not, uh-huh. it's just quite a visual to see that, not knowing it had ever existed before. All right, so it seems like you're using, what was the Indian instrument you said? Bulbul Terang. Yes, you're using that and your choice of percussion. It's very cinematic, especially at the end of the song that you're sort of ends up, you know, with this flickering distortion feedback thing that ends the song. I think that's the bubble terrain feeding back, actually. Okay, all right. Yeah, that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Nothing digital on here whatsoever. Was there even a metronome? <laughs> Was there something that you started with? No, I sometimes use metronomes and sometimes don't, depending on who's playing drums, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. there, was, there wasn't that on this. Actually, my good friend, uh, Franck Barbier, who used to play in Elliot Murphy's band, he plays drums on that. Like most of my recordings, it wasn't planned for him to play drums on it, but I played it for him and he just like knocked it out. Keith Strang from the Flesh Tones plays percussion. And I have to hand it to him. He plays shaker because I called him in just to sing and stuff. He goes, you know, you know, I used to be a drummer. I said, no, I didn't know that. And I've known this guy for years. And the shaker really kind of brings the whole attitude all together that he puts on. It's really great. And are you playing the bass on this? It didn't sound like you brought in someone else. No, that's me. Okay. Because I don't know. It wasn't like exactly on top of each other in the way that I would expect if it's the same person. There was some sort of you added some extra thoughts during the chorus. That, you know, you could very easily just let's be exactly in unison with the guitar just to really punch that home. But it adds a little bit of extra dimension. I don't know. I always like busy basses. <laughs> I play bass when I can. I mean, usually the simpler stuff, if you hear it on my records, that's me. Mm-hmm. And the more complex stuff is someone that can really play. But I am aware of the bass being a separate instrument. So it's seldom we have me just kind of playing in knock a blow in unison with the guitar. 
Are you playing it with a pick at least? So the, the, the guitarist's way of transitioning or no? I don't know if I want to tell you that. I can't <laughs> no judgment either way. I started on bass, so I, I played yeah, yeah, yeah. upright. And, and Oh, really? Yes. And so playing guitar with a pick is weird for me. I, <laughs> oh, cool. No, I probably did use a pick. I mean, because, I mean, it's just easier for me because I don't play bass that often, you know? Yeah. You could probably hear that too, being a bass player, right? <laughs> plunk, 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 plunk. Makes a sharper tone. I like it some of the time. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Let's pull out the second tune. So we've got something else on the table for us. The title track to The Naked Flame. Any words about where you were at at this point, as opposed to now, 2011, when you're recording this? I was deeply in love. Okay. And this is kind of the very passionate love song. The title came from, I was touring in, and I was in London. And in the tube in London, in the subway, they have the sign that says, No Naked Flame. Ah. That just struck me. I thought, why couldn't you just say, don't? smokers. You know? I found it very poetic, you know, it's like the word naked flame. So then like I, people are going to be carrying their covered lanterns, the non-naked flames. Are- yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a very, you know, the English thing. So I did find it poetic, like I said, so then I turned it into a song. The um, band is a band called Capsula that live in Bilbao, Spain, and are actually from Argentina. And they came to my studio to record and uh, to have me mix an album. They said, well, do you have any songs? And, and this is when I was just really into producing and mixing in the studio. I had no thoughts of playing or anything at the time. And they said, do you have any demos or anything? I said, yeah, I got a ton of stuff. So they said, give them to us. We'll take them back to Spain and we'll record the demos. And if you like it, then you can bring it back here and then put you know all the finishing touches on it. Mm. And they took it to Spain and they nailed it. Just like the exact feel, the aggression, you know, that a lot of those songs had and the Naked Flame had, they were really great. I'm not here to try to deceive you. I came to these ashes just to be by your side. Come on and take my hand and try to be courageous. The sparks may fly, so baby, close your eyes. I'm burning down real slow, and baby, here we go. Cause I just wanna get close to the naked flame of your love. Without you I curse the day Cause you're so far away I want to be held inside your fingers oh, That's right And I whimper like a dog When you say stay Hey Save me 
So to me, this sounds very Hendrix. If you say this is a love song, like, well, this is a sprawling balls to the wall rock and roll love song. This is not a, it's not a ballad. Do you know what you're channeling on that? You know, it's something vaguely metal. I was getting all this hype when I was playing with Matthew Sweet about how much I resemble Hendrix and how much I play like Hendrix. I saw Hendrix when I was a child, basically. Mm -hmm. If you see him, you don't compare anybody to him. It's like, I just thought it was ridiculous. Plus, I've been playing guitar for years. And no one said anything until I picked up a strap. So that being said, when I was writing the song in the album, I thought, what if you had a modern day, let me stand next to your fire? So it's kind of coming from there, combined with Metallica. Okay. All right. So I wasn't too far off there. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. Any thoughts on structuring this? How much you're going to solo? We didn't actually even talk about your solo in the last song of how little or much this will go on. Clearly, if you weren't in the room with these people when they recorded the basic tracks, right? Yeah. In Spain. And so you're just adding your stuff. So you'd already determined in the demo, right, how long this is going to last or, or do they give you some extra space? Like we talked about with your four track, I have the sketch. It's there. And I, don't, I don't vary from that too much, especially if somebody else is going to play it in another country. That song, I just wanted to wank. And it's, the timing is weird. Um, I'm actually here in Chicago now playing space in Chicago for a record release party. And we're going to do Naked Flame. And I'm trying to explain it to these guys that are really, you know, accomplished musicians, but it's difficult because the timing is all off kilter, kind of, especially the intro. Yeah, I would think that it would be difficult to do this if you weren't cueing it because it's, and now I'm going to do something vocal and it could last any amount of time. And then we play, you know... (laughs) like okay like was there a click track so that no they're all the same length it's not you know you could you could play without the vocal just fine no you can't because that's what we found out last night because the drummer for some reason he got the instrumental version of the songs because the band's here i'm coming from new york and he didn't have the vocal and he couldn't figure it out he goes well what's going on there i said well it's like you know it's kind of a vocal cue but there is timing like i one two three four five six one two three four five six one two three four but uh, yeah, it's hard without the vocal that song, you know. I purposefully like made it so that it was a bit syncopated. So it wasn't just, you know, just one, two, three, four in the intro. So any other guitars, like, let me just play this. The fire lifts me up and down And in the coals I roll around Cause I just wanna get to the naked flame of your love the extra guitars that were adding a little arpeggiation to fill in things. So that was probably the Spanish guys that contributed to that, or did you add additional lead stuff? That's me. That's me kind of layering things, yeah. They just basically played the chords on this, like, bump bump. Okay. It's not like, it's the band, and then you're just soloing over that, that you actually got to still texture it out and... I don't know, Was it, were there things in the mix, do you recall? Like, I assume they gave you the raw tracks rather than, here's a mixed two-track thing, so you could remove stuff or was that even an issue that they were so playing so basic actually do you even like do digital manipulation when you get a bass part from somebody are you pulling out specific notes are you shifting things around 
Sometimes you have to. That's the advantage of recording digitally, you know. But then again, the whole thing was recorded on tape and then digitized, especially the drums, because I'm not a fan of a lot of cymbals. I never heard, you know, a woman ask for more cymbals, you know, it's, especially in recording. Most, I mean, most people that work in studios feel the same way because it just washes everything. So I remember kind of trying to get rid of that. But in general, I just left it intact because they really did a great job. I assume you did this, you did a tour after this. So you had some other band that you were working this back up with or was this just pretty much a studio thing until now? It was just them. And then I just added stuff to it, you know. And as I remember, the weird thing about that was my studio at the time was booked during the day. And I don't like to do this. I don't think it's romantic at all. But I had to go in from like 12 midnight to seven in the morning every day. You know, kind of a weird, weird existence. I mean, because everybody else is going as you're coming. I, I don't know. But yeah, I just laid the stuff on it, you know. I thought I remembered during the documentary seeing a flash of something that I thought I remembered was this song, but maybe it was a different song from this album where you were like playing live with people either for a video or in a in a gig. I mean, was there any of that? Was there... Not for the Naked Flame. That was on Swing Your Lanterns we were recording at the time. Yeah. I have to recommend that to folks. I'll definitely link them because, I don't know, it was so nice that I spun this album a couple of times and then I'm like, oh, I'm getting to see the making of video because half of it is, and it's from, what, 2018, 17 was when that was shot? Is that, or 19? It was 18. Yeah. So this is, so these have been in the hopper, at least some of these songs that you got to see the actual band you were doing with. And I know there are some artists that will put together a different band in every city that they tour. Is this thing that you're doing in Chicago just a one-off or are you doing this same thing in LA, etc.? I don't really have a booking agent yet. I'm looking for one, but this is a record release show. Okay. I would prefer to have my own band in New York. So, but I, you know, I can't afford to bring them here right now. You know, it's like a, it's a six piece band. They're called the Magnificent Six. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of expenses. Um, but then again, one of the people that does play on the record, Nicholas Tremulous is from Chicago. And so he put a band together for me and they're doing it here. But I would, I, I've done that. I mean, actually, I've done that with percussion players, like pick up a different percussion player in each city. It's much better to have a band, you know, I, I believe in bands. I believe in the chemistry, you know, I mean, that, that it's about when people play together for a long time. And with this new, like the people that played with you in the studio, it looked from the video like these were people that you'd known for a long time. Some of them, the drummer on that I hadn't met, he came from a session that I'd done um, before, a couple of years before, and I admired his drumming. And I thought he would be right for that song. Mm-hmm. And that's how I record. If I find some people that I think, they would be right for the song. It's all about serving the song. I, I mean, there's like four bass players on the album, including myself. And I had one guy come in and just kept telling me how much money he should get, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And he played like crap. I gave him his 200 bucks and sent him packing. Didn't use the particle, of course, you know. But I mean, yeah, it depends. I mean, because you never know until he gets there. It's, like, it's not about me. It's about the song. It's about the record, which is why I don't play all the guitars on the record sometimes. Yeah, so I guess trying to figure out how best to get you talking about the general, uh, your choice in career of what you're going to do at any given time. Letting these solo songs build up and then, okay, we're going to do this release in 2011. We're going to do this release now. But as you've said, it's expensive to do anything with it. You can just record home record if you you own your studio. Like it's not a, a great overhead necessarily to put the tracks together, but then to actually finalize it and market it and go through all the, the rigmarole do you just mostly prefer to have other people do that? I prefer to have other people do that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, because when I, when I was putting, I'm, I'm old school that way. I'm, I'm in, it's just how it is. Because then when I was putting this together, I had friends suggest that I go to the band camp route. 
and then hire a publicist and all that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm just not equipped to do that. You know, I'm running a studio. I mean, I just, I just can't. You know, I, I don't see myself running to the post office every day with boxes. I mean, that's the reality of it. Sure. No, of course. And past a certain age, I don't know. You'll do that once when you're 22 or whatever, whatever the time is. Then like, yes, I will be at the copy store making my liner notes for my cassettes, you know, and recording them individually on my cassette player to hand out like, but after a certain point that gets completely ridiculous. I was more just thinking, is it easier to just slot into, I'm going to be in a band. Your guitar playing is very much in demand and it gets out there. You don't have to do anything to to like have your playing out and get the gigs booked and you can just show up. Is that purely for financial reasons and you prefer to do the solo stuff or do you actually prefer to sometimes just be in a group? I love touring. I love traveling. I love you know, seeing new things and um, I love playing music all over the place. But to answer your question, it's purely financial. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, because when you have your own band, I mean, a lot of the expenses go to you. And then the phone rings and somebody says, hey, I'll give you XXX to come out on the road with me for two months. That turns into six. But I do have prerequisites. Of like, I absolutely have to like the songs and have to like the music. Sure. You know, I mean, and I have to feel like I'm contributing something. And I mean, I know there's no chance of me writing in this situation. I like to write as well. But I mean, if you need the money, and especially if you live in New York City, you're, sometimes you're a fool to turn things down. Someone once came to me and um, said, Michael Bolton needs a guitar player. And I just thought, no. Not because of taste. I just thought I'm going to be back in the corner of the stage somewhere with a 60 watt bullet above me. I thought, no, I'm just not doing that. You know, (laughs) we're going to take a slight break so I can tell you about another podcast. Songs My Ex Ruined is a podcast about songs people can never listen to again because their terrible exes destroyed them forever. Each week, music journalists Courtney E. Smith and Melissa Locker sit down with a guest for hilarious, vulnerable, honest and frank conversations about those songs. Along with a new guest every week, they discuss the songs that take you by surprise when they come on at the grocery store or transport you from the locker room and back to a relationship gone sour. The songs that you just can't hear without thinking of that one person. Whether you got dumped, broke up, had a soundtrack to a sweet memory or a bitter argument, or merely given an exceptionally bad playlist that featured the tune, everyone has the song that it crushes their soul to hear. Find Songs My Ex Ruined anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, let's go all the way back to your first well-known group here. First one that you're on record that we're going to talk about, I should say. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is Richard Hell and the Voidoids. I didn't realize this was a band that I long knew that I should check out because it was television related. And I sort of knew who Richard Hell was, but I hadn't realized that like, no, this is not his little solo thing. This is a group with the dual guitars just as good as in the band television. Any thoughts before we hear this? So the one we're going to listen to is Liars Beware, which is one that you wrote the music for, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Our model for the band was the Yardbirds, whereas you have two guitar players that are doing separate things on separate parts of the neck, never playing the same chord in the same part of the neck. That was our model for how the two guitars should weave with each other, you know? Any thoughts about Liars Beware before we hear it, and then we'll talk in more detail. It, it was um, cathartic, you know? I mean, it's like I just moved to New York City. And all the noise and all the cacophony just kind of turned itself into a guitar riff. I remember coming out of the subway one day at Broadway and A Street in the village. I'd been there maybe a month and it's just all hit me and turned into this riff. And then I just joined the Voidoids. Richard needed songs, which is why I joined the Voidoids, because I could write. And he goes, well, what do you want it to be about? You know, I told him, I want it to be about fuck you, fuck this, fuck that, fuck me, fuck you, fuck it. And then he wrote Liars Beware.
So this main riff, the which, you know, one of the first people I interviewed for this podcast were from Camper Van Beethoven. And they would do uh-huh. that kind of riff all the time. I associate with kind of, it's their version of gypsy music. But like, no, it's right here back in 77. Do you even know where this came from? Well, I know it came from because I, would, I just lived in what was in Yugoslavia. And we're in Macedonia. We were all over the place. And I would go and listen to these gypsy players play like really wild um, instruments and violin. It stayed with me that this is a new scale of music, you know, uh, beyond the blues or rock and roll that I'd been playing before. So it probably probably came from that. I, I never thought about that, actually, but I probably did. Well, the structuring is so interesting that these parts that are introduced in the intro with the... But like hearing it just in the intro, it seems a little out of place. It's like you have a little overture in the intro. Yeah. Like, oh, this is going to be the chorus, but we're just going to give you the first three notes. We'll just throw it in the intro as part of this little progression before the vocals come in. I thought that was pretty cool that only from the live version was it really clear to me that, oh, you're you're doing the intro and you're doing that main riff. That it's not like, because I guess in the studio, you're overdubbing yourself. Yeah, I just played it straight through and then I doubled the part. They had me double the parts which in both, both speakers like that. Yeah. The reason for that, boom, boom, boom. It's like, I can't do the riff throughout the whole song and not do anything else. <laughs> so I got to do something else. <laughs> well, having it during the verses that we're going to kind of go to this mostly one note thing, and then have it break into the, the main riff again. You know, that's an interesting call and response. Was the whole thing written, I assume, as an instrumental thing before any vocals got involved? Yeah. Because that's kind of how it sounds. And it sounds like it honestly doesn't need any vocals. <laughs> like it's a plenty busy song. And then to throw in this punk vocal over the whole thing, like it's not particularly a punk song. It's not you smearing around on two chords or whatever. It's a strange combination. Yeah, I never thought of that. But yeah, it, it's true. I mean, I love what Richard put over it. I, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, and of course, being Richard, he came from completely out of somewhere else, you know, and, and put the vocal over it. It didn't seem like a foreign intrusion to you, right? Because you requested this level of snark or, you know, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you. And so when you think of the song, you think of it with the vocal. You don't just think of the riff or is it? Or... I, could, I can't imagine it with just a riff. Uh-huh. It supplied the other 50% exactly the way I, I envisioned it. You know, you solo over the whole verse and the chorus and the ascending part, the post-chorus. Was this just purely a jam? Was it more or less the same every time? Or do you, do you even recall? I worked out the solo. I don't know if I could have played it the same in the live version. I mean, but I worked out the solo to be pretty much that. I mean, and it was just all one take. I didn't like drop in or anything like that or punch in the whole thing. The version of the album, did I even say that this is from Blank Generation 77? So the first album by that group, the only one that you're actually on, was the whole thing re-recorded in a second studio? <laughs> is that right? Because there's not an alternate version of this song. There's an alternate version on the, you know, the deluxe CD version or whatever that's on Spotify now of many of the songs, but not this one. This one, there's just a live as the alternate. We finished the record. I mean, I was, it was in May, I'm sorry, spring, May or something of that year. And I was really in awe of being able to record at Electric Lady Studios, of course, you know, mm-hmm. because, I mean, it's just, you know, it's Electric Lady, it's Jimmy Hendrix's studio. And then a couple of weeks later, Richard comes to me and goes, we're recording the album again. Well, well wait a minute, I only got paid to, to record it once, <laughs> you know, but no, we're recording it again. Uh, he never told me why, actually. I always thought it was Richard Goddard's decision, the producer, 
up until, you know, I, recently when I was talking to Richard, and he goes, no, it was me. I didn't like the way it sounded. And he has a point. I mean, we were using these big, bombastic, you know, 70s amplifiers, giant stacks and stuff like that. And it just sounded like just bombastic, a lot of it, where it didn't have to. So then it was recorded at Plaza Sound up in, um, in the Radio City Music Complex. And Quine and I, I remember us walking in. The Plaza Sound is this giant live room that they used to record um, symphony orchestras. It's huge. You know, so Quine and I are walking in from the opposite side of the room, and we're getting closer and closer, and we see these little tiny champ amps. And we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but they sounded great. You know, these little Fender champ amps, they sounded great. Were you even in that band long enough for you two to have significant influence on each other's playing styles or anything? I was in the band most of the time until like Destiny Street started. I mean, the, the band. Uh, How many years four, are we talking? Four. four okay, did, I didn't realize it four, was- four or five years, just something like that. Yeah, it's like up until like I think seventy-seven to like well, it'd be three or four years probably. But yeah, but as the band went on, Quine and I started to sound a lot like each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a strange phenomenon. It's like especially with the newer songs that some of the. I mean, I think some of them might be released on something somewhere. But yeah, we started to sound a lot like each other. And we hung out all the time and exchanged like, you know, records and listened to music and stuff like that. I mean, because Bob was much more into jazz than I was. So he turned me on to all this great jazz stuff like Albert Eiler. I mean, was this literally like the heart of the punk movement, literally post-punk in that at least it sounded like his influence were jazz prog? I don't know. Was there any any love of Steve Howe? Not a lot of love, none of that. As I mean, it's a pokey to- little riff in this song is what I'm saying. That, you know, there's some trouble. It has a little how I'll take that back if that is offensive to you. <laughs> I, you know, I have to go back and listen to him. Actually, I saw him on YouTube the other night where he's doing something at Montreal Jazz Festival. Like we totally were, we're not we're not aware of it. The other thing is, like if you listen to the other guitar, it's like Quine didn't like to and didn't think he could play rhythm very well. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, which is why I ended up doing a lot of the rhythms. Not, and I love to play rhythm. I don't, I don't I don't mind it. But he's doing this choppy thing. Da da. Which is great. That's the perfect part for that. Because, you know, my thing's all, and he's just going, like a horn part almost, you know? Well, and it's actually fun that the live version on there has him cranked up way too loud compared to you. So you really get to hear how the two guitars are different on the live version. Uh, Which, (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard this. There's the version that's on Spotify that I was listening has, instead of the 10 that's on the album, it has... 23 or something track. So it's like got multiple versions of everything. Okay. I think I got to check that out. It's <laughs> interesting. Cause some of those recordings were made at CBGB's. Oh yeah. With someone standing with a cassette player on one side of the stage. Oh, that would, that would make sense. Yeah. I guess it sounds that bad, but yes, I think it has the Ladyland versions of the other things. So you're done with this and then you start the outsets. Are those albums going to be re-released at some point? I was able to hear them on YouTube, but like, it's not good quality. I have to check that out too. No, I mean, it, this is pre-digital. I mean, uh-huh. there were never CDs made of that stuff. And I don't even think there were cassettes, actually. I have the masters somewhere. So yeah, I mean, we'll see. Right now I'm busy with this. We'll see. I mean, it should, some of it should come out. Some of it's good music. Oh, yeah. And I saw that the Young Man's Money that you redid. Some of these songs from that era, from the early 80s, you're redoing 
in 2011. So, you know, must yeah. have had some. But what was the sequence then that, you know, you're now, the Voido, it wasn't playing out often enough. And so you start your own, is that right? That's, That's why true. you started your own, your own band. But it seems like it lasted just about it as long, right? It had an album and an EP. Was the rise and fall of the outsets? Was that just a matter of why are there no more outsets albums? Um, the bass player OD'd, my partner. That happened a lot. Sorry, you asked that. It's, you know, I, I mean, should have done more homework on this. Yeah, well, it's not. An, it's not a very well known fact. You know, I mean, um, heroin is a horrible thing. It always has been a horrible thing. You know, especially in the music community. I never really got into it because I read books about you know this jazz people in the fifties and how it just completely destroyed a lot of them. So, I, and besides that, it, to be honest, I tried it. It wasn't fun. You know, I didn't want to vomit. You know, <laughs> like um. But the way this went is like a lot of, you know, neophytes that came to town, like Danny Hirsch, my bass player that I, you know, love the guy, incredible musician, incredible collaborator. You know, this stuff comes into town that's stronger than anything else. And it kills people. It still happens like that, I think. Yeah. So that's why there are no, no more ideas that's just, just stopped. And while I was moping around, that's when Shriekback called. So I thought, you know, they here and I can mope around or I can go out with this wild and crazy band, which they were. Well, I could see how that would be very demoralizing to continue a project. I wrote the songs, but he was really my partner in organizing the whole thing and actually kind of arranging some of the songs. He was great. Moving into, was there a question of like, oh, maybe you can actually, Shriekback didn't have a guitarist at the time. Maybe you could actually just be on the next album, you know, be part of that, or they're just, they're British. That wasn't going to happen. That's kind of what it boiled down to. I mean, I was with them. God, a good seven months or something like that, you know, because uh, once again, I thought it was just a month or two. And then Oil and Gold was the record they were promoting and okay. got more and more popular. And then one month turned into two, two nerd turned into three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then when they went back to England, Barry had a change of heart and decided he wanted to make a totally different kind of album, which was the next one, which I have to, I have to get. Sure. Big Night Music. Yeah. I can see because Lou Edmonds parts on that Oil and Gold, like the sort of explosions of feedback and things. But yet they have to sit in, you know, it's not an alternative rock band. They have to sit in this like very textured, layered thing. Like I can completely see you being able to sit in that. And they were great about it. They're very gracious or generous, I should say, because they said, okay, this song's in D, go. I go, okay. And I never really, they kind of wailed on the guitar before. I'm, I'm usually kind of a structured player. Mm -hmm. or I was like because of my influences. But that was fun, just like making the guitar, making the sounds possible within that realm and that a really great rhythmic band, because they were, you know, Martin on drums and, and Dave Allen on bass. It was like, you know, heaven. And so very different setup from the Matthew Sweet, two guitars, bass, drums, power pop thing. I don't know. Were you singing harmonies live on that? Matt does his own harmonies and he does it in the strangest way, whereas he will sit, sing a, a harmony part. And then he'll go back and sing harmony to that without hearing the first part that he sang. I've never seen anything like it. Well, I just was thinking on tour. He can't obviously do that. Oh, no, on tour. Oh, no, on tour. No, no. Tony sang the parts. Too. Okay. Uh, Matthew never used me as a vocalist. I don't know why. <laughs> well, that was interesting. You know, the fact that you were on many of those albums, again, playing with Robert Quine, you know, alternating on different songs or with Richard Lloyd from television. <laughs> that was Matthew's formula. Uh-huh. He's write these really glistening, pristine pop songs, which are amazing. And then he'd have Lloyd, Quine, and myself come in and just poo-poo all over everything. And that was his sound back then. It was great. And now he poo-poo's over it himself. He doesn't, he does, he's, at least on the recent albums, he's not bringing in the heavy hitters I know, anymore. I know, I know. I think I, I did something with him and Susanna Hoffs not you know, a mm. while back. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, he's, he's playing basically any, everything himself. And he can, you know, he's a great guitarist, great bass player. 
you know, while we're talking about that, let me just insert the solo here from someone to pull the trigger. Was this just go to it, no direction whatsoever? Or, or in playing with him, was it, no, 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 do five more takes, make it bigger? What was the level of direction on No, that? I mean, he had written a song on the road, so we kind of played it during sound check, and I'd come up with the solo that he surprisingly really liked, because it was, to me, kind of something I would develop and embellish on later. But he liked that solo. So, I mean, basically, I just kind of played what I had always been playing. And also, according to him, the guitar is slightly out of tune, which he liked. It's a 12-string. 12-string mm-hmm. telly, buddy. Yeah. It's hard to not have the 12-string be out of tune in some way. <laughs> There's a lot yeah, of strings. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, thanks so much for doing this. We're going to just introduce one last song, which is uh, Voodoo Christmas off the new album. Quite a different sound than the the drone song. I mean, there's a lot of variety on this record, I should say. It's it's not just, you know, one, even though I characterize it as Rolling Stones. Well, that's because Rolling Stones also did psychedelic and R&B. And, you know, it's a very wide-ranging thing. I love to make albums like that. I don't like, you know, monosonic albums where everything's just kind of basically a repeat of the last song in a different key with the same instruments and stuff like that. And, you know, Voodoo Christmas is something. Someone gave me this old keyboard, this old Korg keyboard, pre-MIDI. And it had a drum machine in it. And I always say, like, if you get an instrument, write something on it before you know how to work it, you know? So um, I got the drum machine going, and then I started playing these chords. And I had the lyrics for Voodoo Christmas around for a while and just and wrote Voodoo Christmas. And then, once again, from Fabier, the drummer came in and said, well, I'm going to play drums over the drum machine. I'm like, really? I want to do it. But he did, and it sounded great. You know, I, I listen to people. If it sounds good, it sounds good. And Voodoo Christmas, it is a Christmas song, but it's not because I'm not a big fan of Christmas music. You know, it's like this all this happy, happy, you know, forced sardonic grin. So I thought there needs to be a Christmas song or Christmas music for the rest of us that kind of don't smile when we go into like a shopping mall and stuff. It's da 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 da. You know, it's like kind of kind of gets to us. Also, the fact that Voodoo Christmas is just about having a bad day. It could be any day. You can have a Voodoo Christmas in June. Mm-hmm. So that's Voodoo Christmas.
Thanks so much to Ivan. A really interesting, unique style. To hear more of him, see IvanJulian.com. I did record for a couple more minutes with Ivan and am putting up that footage along with another song from the Fauntleroys, his band with Alejandro Escovedo in 2014. You can get that if you subscribe at Patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. My next interview is with Peter Case, a first-rate singer-songwriter. So make sure you get that. And all my other interviews, please subscribe to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast through nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or look up the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope you're all doing well. Until next time, keep on music in. This is Mark Litzmeyer signing off. 